and I was still on crutches, <laughs> non-weight bearing. So I had to get on crutches in the driveway, get on the bike. Mary pushed me out of the driveway. I said, I'll be back in an hour. I'm going to need help. And so that was my... To re- catch you. Yeah. To get, <laughs> to get off the bike. Talk about no crashing rule. Right. That, <laughs> so that process went on and I was able to go to those next two World Cups and be the highest placing American and make the team. Went to Sydney and, you know, had an Olympic experience, which is, it's a, a bigger experience than, than cycling that you kind of thought was a big experience to start with. It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! You've been living in a dream world, Neo. Yeah. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we talking about practice. You peed on the dude's rug. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see, you think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk like Jesus. This is the Adventure Stash with Pace and McCalvin. Howdy, y'all. We are back this week with Mountain Bike Hall of Famer Travis Brown. I consider Travis a role model uh, in a big way. I wouldn't say that I have heroes so much at this point in my life anymore, but if I had to pick a few, he'd be on that list. Um, Some may assume that that's because of the illustrious race career he had, but honestly, it's mostly because of just the person he is, the incredible number of skills he has outside of the sport, how well-rounded he is, and all the projects that he's up to these days. Um, he's, he's another of those folks that I'd consider on the list for the most interesting man alive. We talk a little bit about bike racing, but we also talk a lot about product development, which is uh, one of the, the main ways that he and I spend time together. Um, his garage, which isn't something I can really talk about, has a lot of stuff in it that doesn't see the light of day, but some stuff that comes out of his garage does see the light of day and literally changes the direction of innovation of bikes in our sport. The ideas that come out of his head are pretty incredible, and the way he thinks is a little bit different than, than a lot of folks. We also talk about how at the Single Speed World Championships, you used to get a branding instead of a tattoo. So your award was getting your flesh burned. It's the sort of thing that Travis probably didn't even bat an eye at. Um, in fact, I believe he has a couple of those titles, those single speed worlds titles. Um, anyway, enjoy this conversation with Travis and I think you'll get an idea of why I look up to him so much. Um, speaking of mountain biking, I am absolutely beat up from the feet up. I just finished BC bike race yesterday, eight day stage race here in British Columbia. And it really put me through the ringer. I mean, obviously sore muscles, tired mind. But um, got some solid rib cage lacerations, sore knees, scraped up elbows. Uh, this one's the real deal. But really, again, the bike is the best way to see a new place. And I will be back to British Columbia. That is for damn sure. This place is amazing. Hope you all are well. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. That's a good starting point. What was the first dumb car purchase you made? <laughs> uh, 
Well, the, the segue that you just have a new car purchase reminded me of, I guess, that stage in my career when I started making money, you know, from racing. And Jeremy, JHK, and I were training partners for probably a dozen years together in Boulder. And one of the things we would kill time with in the long hours on the bike was talking about cars. So we sent each other kind of down the spiral of indulging in car purchases. And um, I bought an A8. That was that was one of the probably less wise expenditures <laughs> I made in my life. Why, why was it less wise? Well, I enjoyed the car, but... Uh, I look back on it and I'm just not a luxury car guy yeah. from a value standpoint. Right, right. But at that point, in that time in my life, you know, the hype of it was, I, I indulged. I think yeah. Jeremy bought a, an FX45 around the same time. Yeah. So. what? How old were you then? I was, you know, I didn't. It was a ways into kind of the main part of my racing career because we had uh, Volkswagen as a team sponsor, the truck Volkswagen team. And that was one of the more enduring non-endemic sponsorships in the mountain bike industry. I think that went on for 15 years or something. And so I had a team car, a nice VW, either a, a Bug or a Passat or a van or something for all those years. So yeah. I was probably late 20s when i overindulged in the the hot automobile category <laughs> nice so you kept your head on straight for how many years then when did you when did your career start when did you sign I, your first pro contract i signed my first pro contract in uh, 1991 hmm. i was a ski racer uh, in college, that was my priority, and I skied for the University of Colorado and had a scholarship there, so I had some obligations to continue to ski after I actually discovered mountain biking as a passion. So I was kind of burning the candle at both ends too, racing all summer and racing all winter. Yeah. But the inaugural official UCI World Championships were here in Durango in 1990, and I had raced, that was really my first full summer of racing in the expert class. And so that was kind of the semi-pro class at the time. Uh, it was a uh, beginner sport expert pro. And that was a time when mountain biking was, was booming and there were actually experts with contracts that oh, were wow. getting salaries and expenses <laughs> and things like that. It was That's kind of an odd landscape compared to today. And I won the state championships and then I won the Colorado point series as an expert. And then I won the nationals in mammoth that year. And with the worlds in Durango, I decided I would do the qualification racer move up a category. I had a pretty successful semi pro yeah. season. I was like, all right, I'm ready to go for it. And yeah. so I moved up, uh, did the qualifying race and qualified for the final world championships and was 10th in that race in 1990. And so the, fall, in the qualifying race, actually, I, I was 10th in the qualifying race. Yeah. And I also finished 10th in the world championship. Really? Race. Wow. Um, huh. And so that gave me a lot of opportunities for the 91 season to race pro. And I raced for Manitou. Yeah. And you were early 90s. 20s. 
Yeah, so I was, uh, well, let's see, 21, 22. Yeah, wow. I was born in 69. 10th as a 22-year-old in the first ever Worlds in your hometown. Yeah. You're you're from Durango. Yeah. No one knows about that in Durango because Ned won. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, not no one knows about that, but, you know, the hometown people here rode well. Yeah. You know, um, and Americans rode well. Yeah. Daryl Price, who ended up being my teammate years later on trek, was ninth in that race. Uh, you know, Mike Closure was in the top 10. Um, there wasn't a U23 category at that point. I think I would have was third in the U23s. Frischnet was second there. Mm-hmm. He would have, he was in my age category at that point if they had had that at that point. Yeah. So yeah, that was, I mean, that was a springboard for my racing career that, you know, I could only dream about. Right. And so instead of going on to dental school or medical school, when I graduated in 93, I decided that I was going to try to race bikes for a living. I'd already started making a little bit of money. So that may have cushioned the blow a little bit to my parents and my father, who was a dentist and was kind of anticipating me going into practice with him. Maybe. Oh, interesting. That, and that was a huge opportunity for me that I kind of halfway through uh, schooling at CU, I changed from aerospace engineering to microbiology so that I could fulfill those pre-med requirements. Because the more I looked at it, I'm like, that's too big of an opportunity to not take advantage of to go into practice with my dad. Yeah. And I thought, you know, if I can just pay all my bills for one year out of school and call that a career, I'll be satisfied with it. And it just built on itself, you know. I kept getting a little better and making improvements. And the sport and the opportunities for professional racing were growing at a really nice pace, too. So that turned into 15 years of racing full time. Wow. So what that first team you said was Manitou, and what was the actual frame that you were on in that first year? So yeah, that's the interesting part of the history of just the buildup of brands. So mm-hmm. Manitou started as a bike brand. Doug Bradbury, Manitou Springs, Colorado Springs, started this brand. He was a motorcycle guy and a fabricator and a welder. And he built frames. And then as a motorcycle guy, there wasn't suspension. So he built forks. He did them all in his garage wow. in Manitou Springs on Gold Camp Road. Yeah. And that was a big part of my introduction into product development as a rider was Doug said, all right, here's the regular bike that I make and you ride it and then you can change anything you want. Hmm. So I had a completely blank slate from a geometry standpoint. And Doug was a really progressive guy. He was building he was cut hubs apart and add a center part to the hub that was 10 millimeters wider. It's kind of boost spacing before Interesting. 20 years before people talked about boost spacing. Yeah. So that opportunity with Doug was my first two years as a pro was really a huge education in fabrication and innovation and all of those things and kind of thinking about things outside the box. Yeah. Yeah. I owe a lot to him. Yeah. I mean, fast forwarding to what you do now, that's exactly what you do now. I mean, right. you're kind of known as the guy that thinks outside the box, pushes what's possible, um, and is you know cutting bikes apart and putting them back together. And <laughs> maybe not quite to that extreme, but it's interesting that it started 
that early and um, continued, you know, throughout your career. You mentioned earlier that you started with an aerospace engineering track. Right. So you're just engineering minded through and through. It sounds yeah, like. I think, you know, it does it for me to think about product and bike products, particularly when you're racing in ways that changing the product might give you an advantage. Yeah. And I carried that throughout my career. Yeah. And lots of times it blew up in my face and I tried something that was totally inferior to what everyone else was riding. Yeah. But every once in a while you'd try something and it was better. And those days were so fun. Yeah. You know, whatever it was, tire pressure or geometry or suspension setup or tire choice. Yeah. Um, you know, those days when you felt good and you were trying something that was risky and it turned out to give you an advantage, you felt like a superhero in yeah. those days. How much of a kick did you get out of uh, Kabush's win at Iceman <laughs> last month, a few yeah, weeks ago? I, that was awesome. <laughs> you know, go not only going to drop bars, but going back to smaller wheels. Like everything about that experiment, I it was very indulgent for me to watch that happen. I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. We were kind of poking him in the ribs the day before, and <clears throat> I was pretty skeptical because there was a significant amount of trail in that course this year, a single track. And um, I honestly didn't think it was going to be faster, but I think he was probably one of the few guys in the field that could make it an advantage. And by that, I mean he was at a disadvantage in the single track, uh -huh. I felt, and we were definitely pushing the pace there, trying to burn him off. But he sort of weathered the storm, and then in the last 25% of the course when it was very much an advantage, you just couldn't follow him. I mean, it was really impressive. And so that was on the rolly stuff at the end and cl climbing, he had an advantage on that setup. Yeah. And it was just so smooth. That last bit was so smooth. And, uh, Alexi had a, Alexi Vermillion who was second had done a really good job of hiding all day. And I think some of us had maybe been a little bit overconfident. So Jeff really had the perfect, partner in crime there and uh -huh. when they went away i mean there wasn't a whole lot we could do about it it was pretty impressive so yeah no. i definitely I, th <laughs> I thought of you uh when he did that he certainly pulled one on the on the young guns it was pretty cool tomac throwback um and speaking of tomac i remember john tomac the legendary the elder, mountain bike tomac not the mountain bike to yeah tomac. yes eli's dad um he did some kind of similar things with experimentation with equipment, with his various handlebar setups and the, the disc wheel. He did. Was that an inspiration to you at all, since he was sort of the guy at the time? Well, John on a drop bar mountain bike was, is such an icon yeah. of the 90s of mountain bike racing. The way I understand it, the way I remember it, is that that was part of his trying to dovetail a burgeoning road career with his mountain bike career. And he wanted some consistency in his position on the bike. And this was when he um, had a contract to race on the road. And he's, he was an amazing sprinter for a mountain bike racer and won us crit nationals. Mm. And then um, I think right after that had a contract with Seven Eleven to race on the road and did that for a couple of years. Yeah. And I think that was his primary motivation for riding drop bars on a mountain bike. Huh. But those images, like those historic images are just so cool. Iconic. Yeah. 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 And I remember at one point you and I had a conversation about one of your, your proudest days on the bike and it was a battle with 
Tomac. Right. Can you tell that story when that was, how it went down? Um, The race that we talked about was the 96 Norman National Race in Park City, Utah. And that was a season. I made a big jump in the early parts of that season. It was an Olympic campaign in 95 and 96. And I came into that as kind of one of the new guys, dark horses. But through the five or six race qualification um, criteria for those races between 95 and 96, kind of moved up into a controlling position and had an unfortunate injury at the last of those six races and broke my collarbone, which right before the Olympics, right before the Olympics. Yeah. So that was my focus. That was a little bit heartbreaking, little bit heartbreaking. (laughs) No, seriously. Like what? Okay. How old were you then? 20 Uh, mid mid to late twenties. 20. Let's see. When did we say I was 96? So 26. Yeah. Yeah. And you were in good shape to make that Olympic team. Yeah, so I was l- leading in the point series for the second Olympic slot with the last race. This was in Traverse City, Michigan. Oh, where the really? Ice, huh. Iceman huh. is. Huh. And uh, I think Tinker had already qualified under the automatic criteria, which is maybe top three World Cup or something like okay. that. And then the second position, Ned and myself and Don Myra were pretty close in points, but I believe I was leading and had been racing really well and just had to finish in front of those guys. But I broke my collarbone the day before that race. How'd you break your collarbone? Well, in the Traverse City National Course, there was a a lot of AB lines where the A line was a little bit more technical. Just like World Cups these days. Like World Cups these days. And one of the A lines, I was um, sessioning with my teammate, Daryl Price, and it was a log, maybe three foot in diameter. And you could kind of bump up and over it and ride it, and that wasn't faster than the beeline. But if you came in with speed and bunny hopped and cleared the whole thing and didn't touch it, it was quite a bit faster. So we were seeing how fast we could come in to that obstacle. And I came in and mistimed it just enough that I kissed the rear wheel, and it sent me over the bars, landed on my shoulder, and broke my collarbone. So that was my first collarbone fracture experience in my racing career i had a couple others but how how was your emotional state right after that in the weeks following as a 26 year old what was your perspective well in the weeks following there was a pretty big spectrum from that day to a couple weeks later so pretty devastated that day and the next day and just kind of reevaluating priorities and everything because on a a big picture scale yeah well just as far as like what that meant and do you yeah. continue like everything was about the olympics that year right because it was so, the first time and it was an it was an olympic yeah sport. yeah first time full medal status you know i had had ambitions as a young athlete for olympics as a skier and before that as a runner and then it turned out like well maybe mountain biking is going to be the thing that delivers you to an olympic games so it was kind of a lot of emotion and and energy that had gone into that so Right afterwards, pretty devastated. And then I realized that, you know, wallowing like that wasn't going to do me any good. And resetting goals was really the only way to kind of get my morale back. And Mm. that happened in the first week. Oh, wow. And so... Did you do that? Did you go through that process and get to that point 
on your own or did you have more experienced folks that kind of helped guide you? Because just putting myself in, in your shoes then, I can see scenarios in which you were up at night thinking, you know, who knows what happens come 2000. Maybe this was my shot. And in some ways, it, it's sort of the pinnacle still of, of the mountain bike world. And to get over that in a week at 26 years old is pretty impressive. <laughs> I, I think it was mostly on my own. I did, you know, I had people around me, intimate relationships around me that were very supportive. Mm-hmm. And that was one revelation that came out of that experience was that you need people and it's okay to need people. Yeah. And, but I, I think it was a survival strategy for me. I'd put so much into that, you know, as a y- driven young athlete, it can consume most of your life. And there are a lot of aspects of that. That's not that healthy. So for me to refocus on something else was kind of a survival strategy. And so first of all, that was, all right, I'm going to go for the 2000 games and near term, I'm going to get through this broken collarbone. I'm going to have some time off and there's going to be some races at the end of the year there's going to still be some races at the end of the year for me to demonstrate the form that it looked like I, I had in my pocket at the beginning of the yeah. year. Going to come back and smash. So I was, I came back from that injury with a lot of morale and a lot of drive. And the first big race back after that injury was the national in park city. And I was not that strong in my arms and it was a particularly rough course. So <laughs> not that you know, strong in your arms, just from the, just from not being able to gotcha. mountain bike ride. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was a course that had rough climbs and really long, rough descents. And all you could do at that point, I mean, we pretty much, well, there were full suspension bikes, but they weren't that good. And the best thing you could do is put on big tires with low pressure. And I raced on 2.3 tires in that race. <sighs> which at the time was really kind of bizarre. And, you know, the race started and I was probably, you know, top 15, top 10, the first lap. And then just slowly started moving my way up. And in about mid race, I made a surge through the group to the front and it was just Tomac and I. Wow. And so for the remainder of the race, and you got to remember cross country races at that point were long too. So I don't remember if we did five laps on that longer course or what, but a two and a half, 245 race wasn't that abnormal. And I think that race ended up being about two and a half hours. And so for the second half of that race, it was me passing John on the climb and trying to hold him off on the descent. And every lap that went by, I was holding him off a little bit longer mm-hmm. on the descent. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing all this math in my head, like, is this, is it possible for me to win this race and trying to figure it out? And it came down to the last descent with one more climb. And I knew, I felt like I knew the exact point on the course I needed to hold him off to for me to be able to get back in front of him and win the race. And, and I stayed in front of him like 15 seconds past that point on the course. He got around me. I passed him on the next climb and and uh, was able to have a little bit of breathing room to the finish. Huh. So it's so interesting how even in a race that long, once you've done it, once you've done enough of those races, you can zero in on the tactics 
and just the circumstances to such a specific degree. Um, I was talking to uh, Dave Weens last week, and he made a comment that was uh, similar in that during his first Leadville 100 win, he had been dropped by the lead rider and going down power line, and he just said it nonchalantly. He could tell by the way the lead rider's tires had interacted with the dirt, like the sort of roosts that there were in the dirt and, you know, skid marks here or there. He could tell that this guy was really pushing it and probably riding a little over his head and probably went out too hard. I think probably to you and I, and obviously to Dave, since he said it no, so nonchalantly, it makes sense. I mean, you you start to notice those things and they become second nature. But I think to the average person, knowing you know what the dirt looks like from a from a lead rider's tires to what you just said there, where you could pinpoint in a two and a half hour race down to a 15 second window where you needed to be to pull off the win. That's really cool. I think, yeah, that's part of what's consuming about racing mm. is that state where you're not thinking about anything else. I think there's a Zen aspect to it. So you're hundred percent present in the race and now you're evaluating, all right, my competitor is a little stronger than me in this part and I'm a little stronger in that part. Yep. So how do I take advantage of that dynamic to get the better of him? And he's doing the same thing to you, yep. but that's, that's one thing I still love about racing and why I'm still racing is it's a really good exercise for presence. If you're really engaged in a battle with somebody and it doesn't matter if, if you're at the front of the field or the back of the field, it just takes one other person yep. and you're engaged in that dynamic with them. And there, I mean, your competitor is a huge gift to be able to provide that environment to experience. Yeah. You're not thinking about anything else. You're not thinking about what bills are due. You're not thinking about, you know, ideally. <laughs> yeah. And if you, if you are, you know, you're not in that. That's zone. a message that you're not, you're not in the state that you need to be. Yeah. to have the get your a game that day yeah yeah i remember going through that shift just in my own racing where up to a certain point before a certain point if i were to get dropped by another rider um i would think that okay that's kind of the end but once i started mixing it up a little bit more towards the front and watching the greats you know todd jeff whoever else and seeing that they understood that every second counted and the race wasn't over until you crossed the finish line. There was never giving up during the race ever. Um, and Jeff in particular is, is, has been legendary for it. Just using the entire course and thinking about the course as a whole and knowing that even if he, he were to lose 20 or 30 seconds on a climb, knowing that he's still in the game and staying fully focused. Um, and the difference the thing that I learned just in watching those guys is that if you lose your head, like we're talking about, even for a minute, that opportunity is gone. Um, True. But most of the time, if you really stay focused, have a plan, um, and just keep it close, just keep it close, uh, a lot of times you can you can pull something out. So and you ne you never know, you know, you might get dropped on a climb, but you never know how close to the limit that. Yeah. that you know attack was that popped you off and maybe your competitor went a little bit too far into the red and you decided all right i need to conserve because we got 30 minutes of racing left and it's a net sum game for your energy between the start and the finish yeah. and 
doling out your matches, as we say, or using your bullets, as we say, efficiently has a lot to do with having your A-game race. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's addictive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so speaking of that win with Tomac, uh, what color was your hair during that race? (laughs) <laughs> so yeah that's a, a reference to indulging in when well when you're traveling all the time and you're in hotel rooms and you got your feet up because you've already previewed the course or trained or whatever you got a lot of time to do silly shit so one of the things i used to do was color my hair i believe it was white, white. for that race nice but white black or red or yeah. i think blue yeah. usually white or black yeah or something like that. So you but were, I think it was bleached white at that race. <laughs> you were you were an engineeringly minded uh, professional racer with a pretty unique aesthetic and stylistic <laughs> ways for a time. How did, what was the first time that you decided, you know what, I'm going to change my hair color and, and be totally different and I, spike it in the air? <laughs> I think it was pretty early in my career, and I remember the thought process being... You know, here's a career, and maybe it's going to be a year or maybe it's going to be more, that you can probably get away with being silly with the way you look, whether that's facial hair or hair color or whatever. So you better take advantage of it now because you might be in a cube and that's not going to fly. Yep. So get it out of your system. <laughs> that's awesome. That's great. Did you have a, a, a lucky hair color ever or like a lucky set of earrings or anything like that? I tried, I mean, it was so fun to mess around with stuff like that. I tried not to get superstitious about it. Yeah. And I, I remember having those thoughts like, oh, I had a bad race and I colored my hair. Maybe I shouldn't, <laughs> but I tried to put that in the back seat just for the enjoyment of life. Yeah. I think I had probably good and bad races with every hair color and every beard <laughs> style, so... Did Tomac or Ned ever look at you as like this punk kid? Because, I mean, never in the time that I've known you have you struck me as cocky. Like, if anything, you're the complete opposite. But was there a time where that was part of the thing? Well, I I don't, individuals, I don't think so. I mean, Tomac had uh, a bleached hair mohawk stage too. And, you know, Ned and Tomac were the guys that I was I aspired to when I was coming into the sport. So not from individuals, you know, maybe from outside the industry or, you know, other people. I, you know, there was an attention that was associated with looking different and racing fast. I can't deny that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, but it it was never traumatic or contentious that I can remember. Yeah. And maybe that's just because I didn't care that much if someone felt that way. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Nice. So anyway, going back to, you mentioned um, writing for Manitou and the early introduction to um, technical and product development. That's what you do for Trek now. Right. Um, it sounds like it was of interest kind of since day one. Um and if I remember correctly, you sort of created your current position at Trek in regards to product development. So I guess first question is retirement. When did that happen? And how did you know that it was the right time? 
And then also, what was that transition like into product development? That's a hard thing to figure out what the right time is. I, that was, uh, my last year on the pro team was 2004. And it was pretty clear that year that um, an Olympic campaign was not a, not a wise decision for me. Just from a performance standpoint. Just from a performance standpoint. I mean, I was still kind of on the podium in a lot of races, but Jeremy and Todd and Adam, I think, were performing better at that point. That was the off-road to Athens year Uh, when that DVD came out. No, off-road to Athens was the year that I broke my collarbone. Was it? Yeah. No, no, off-road to Athens. You're right. Off-road to Athens was jeremy's story oh, four. Yeah. yeah 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 sorry yeah they kind of blur together <laughs> so the the path that i kind of set myself on with doug bradbury and manitou about experimentation with product and kind of creating processes for refining hopefully a better performing product i carried into my career at trek and there was a kind of a broad synergy there where I had actually raced on a Trek bike at that 90 Worlds race in Durango. I was on a Trek 8500, and there was a product manager there, and he talked to me after the race, and I started talking to him about the geometry aspects I didn't like about the bike, you know? And then two years later... (laughs) Who's this punk kid? (laughs) And then two years later, I was the first mountain bike pro that Trek ever hired. And so that... To me, that was a really natural part of my responsibility as a racer was to help to be a resource to refine and and push product forward. And so by the end of my racing career, I had really close relationships with product managers and engineers, and I'd made it clear that product development was something that I wanted to move into. And so they allowed me the opportunity to create this position. Now it was not as smooth as that sounds because basically the marketing director says, we're not going to pay you to race anymore. You're, you're at the end. Yeah. (laughs) And I, I won a national that last year. I won the last that year. I won the big bear national. Was that, do you think that would have been the case um, on any team or were things tighter on the mountain bike side? just as it was starting to, you know, maybe it had kind of peaked and there were fewer resources or was it partly because Lance was at his height and pulling so many resources? Cause I mean, to win a national series round and be told that you're at the end of the rope is, I mean, even right. by today's standards that probably wouldn't happen. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, I don't know. Or was it because you were at such a level that it's all relative? Well, it's definitely all relative. And right. you look at athletes careers and there is, <clears throat> a stigma when you're past your peak. Yeah. So I was definitely past my peak at that point. You know, I still had good races, but the, the marketing property of the individual in that position, unless they're actually still winning a lot of races, you know, it's compromised from the traditional view. Yeah. So I appreciated that push and it's worked out really good for me. Um, it was a, a blessing and honestly the reason i won that last race is because the fastest two racers in the u.s were at the olympics <laughs> you know it yeah. would have been very unlikely for me to be todd or jeremy was then. that snowshoe uh snow uh 
Big Bear. Big Snow Bear. Summit. Yeah. Okay. And uh, let's see. I and who was I battling with there? Um, Trent Lowe, a, oh, an Aussie, yeah. Aussie kid who went on to race on the road. Yep. And Ryan Trebon. <laughs> a young, so, young Trebon. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. <laughs> but anyway, so that was the, the beginning of my transition. Now, I did continue to race. You know, I had residual fitness and I won the marathon nationals and then in 2005 and 2006. Really? I didn't as know a, that. As a product. <laughs> an employee of the product department that was in the early days because i think weens won the first i think weens maybe won the first one in 04 in mammoth yeah it was maybe it was early 2000s that they started having okay. the marathon anyway, category yeah. so and that that was the beginning of my transition as i started to be a dedicated resource for, resource for product development it became very clear that the need for us in the mountain bike department at Trek to have this resource was much bigger than I could supply as an individual. Mm -hmm. And I started building that team of test riders around me, which yep. you are part of mm -hmm. now. You have and quite a few. How many are in your fold there right about now? About two you say? dozen. Wow. So. And a solid half of them are here in Durango, right? Yeah. It's yeah. definitely easier to manage the, you know, sensitive product resources <laughs> if they're if they're local and we're lucky in durango that um it's so geologically diverse here that there are a really broad variety of types of surfaces that we can ride on from zero rocks and manka shale to glacial moraine and you know clay bowling balls rocks and yeah and rim rock you know sedimentary layers so it's, yeah. we do have a great resource here for mountain bike and a high concentration of pretty good riders <laughs> yeah there's no shortage of riders that um have a passion for riding and put tons of time on bikes so yeah that's really a benefit to my program now yeah so anyway um today what what is your job what do you do uh you still get to ride for a living to an extent sure but you have to take lots of notes uh -huh. go to lots of meetings um what's your job description so i i think I think the title that Trek gives me is director of field testing. So my job within the core mountain bike development team is validating our prototype bikes with myself and the group of testers and debugging the pilot run bikes to reduce um, issues that the consumer and the dealer are going to have warranty expenses and things like that. And to create a mechanism, with this big group that translates the core user experience into actionable products or directions for the product manager and the design engineer. Mm. And the, what I've realized over the, I think it's, well, 14, 14 years of doing this is that creating a mechanism for a smooth flow of communication between those core user experiences and the product manager or the design engineer, that's the hard part of the puzzle is to make that communication happen. And when you do that, you end up with directions that end up being innovations hmm. and successful products. Yeah, that's fascinating. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember hearing that you are pretty integral in the boost development, the, the recent development of boost hubs. Um, was, did there's that a, there's come, a story around that. Yeah. So did that come 
directly from your garage of secrets? (laughs) Well, when we started talking about, you know, there was a long history of Trek campaigning for the advantages of 29 inch wheels before it became in vogue. And for a long long period of time, that was with the Gary Fisher brand. That was our 29 inch brand. And then when there was a, an amalgam of the Fisher and the Trek brand, it became as a, a, a Trek wheel platform. And when we had identified the things that were preventing this platform that we really believed in from the data, from our field test, from taking hold in the marketplace, one of those things was wheel stiffness. And so the solution to that was widening the flange to accommodate an equal bracing angle to what we were, what we had on a 26 inch wheel and boost was that solution, um, to make those, make that an apples to apples comparison. So that wasn't a reason that people wouldn't consider a 29 inch wheel. And that was a co-development project with SRAM. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the foundation of that. And that philosophy of bracing angle and wheel strength is continuing now with 157 or super boost or mm. whatever people want to call it. Yeah. And there are some applications in the mountain bike categories of which there are a mind boggling number of segments compared to when I started racing, but there's a lot of categories where that platform makes sense too. Yeah. And plus size tires. That was also you in some regard. I think I remember. Yeah. Plus size tires was something well, it goes back to that previous story about cross-country racing on mm-hmm. 2.3 tires yeah. in Park City in 1996 and doing some comparisons and putting a clock on them myself as a racer and realizing, all right, this larger tire feels slower, but I can do five laps and get an average time around this cross-country course, put the smaller tire on and run faster times. And when I put a clock on it, I see it's faster, even though it feels slower. Yeah. So that was kind of part of the formative aspects of that philosophy. Now, the thing, the unique thing in plus size tires for the Trek brand is that we were committed to this 29 inch wheel platform. And when the concept of plus size tires started to take hold and there was tooling to give us the products to test, to prove it, we were on this 29 inch path because of the inherent advantages of 29 inch wheels at the time now we realized a long time before we launched the stash that the plus size bandwagon with the rest of the industry was huge but it was all on 27.5 and because of our field testing and the data we had collected for that project we stuck to our guns and launched the stash as a 29 inch plus platform Hmm. and that's been pretty successful for us yeah and we do have 27 plus platforms now, and those things are starting to sort themselves out. But it just goes to show having a process where you can create an accurate performance profile for one product versus another product and demonstrate that to your development group has a lot of value, yeah. especially in a landscape where you're going against the grain of trends. Yeah. So, what is the for one of those plus sized 29ers what is the actual outer diameter of the wheel or of the tire 
I think it's almost 32 inches. Almost 32. Yeah. Um, do you think wheels are going to get bigger? Yeah, I yeah. do. I think there, there will be experimentation in larger diameters. Yeah. You know, there are, as soon as the tooling's available to many players in the game, yeah. there is a lot of data and physics arguments to suggest that's worth trying. Yeah. The, the bottleneck for those experiments are with the tire manufacturers right now and what exists for tooling. Yeah. And their size capabilities, but that will definitely happen at some point. Maybe yeah. it'll be us. Maybe it'll be somebody else. Is there a platform that you remember being the most gratifying that you've worked on the last 14 years or a, a bike that's out in the wild now that you're most proud of? I think that the narrative of the stash, the yeah. two nine plus hardtail, where we decided to go to market with a two nine plus bike when the rest of the industry was doing a 27 plus and really the whole industry when you would say plus bike people thought it was 27.5 yeah. they weren't even sure 29 existed <laughs> that i like that story because it's data driven yeah that's a bike that's done really well yeah it seems like yeah so speaking of um pushing the envelope and the progression of bikes uh, e-bikes <laughs> you're involved in the development of, of e-bikes yes. with Trek but also you have a huge presence um, with advocacy which is something that I wanted to talk about some too not just in terms of trail advocacy uh, most notably Trails 2000 our organization here in Durango but you know across the board it seems like every time I talk to you you're at some sort of event community event supporting community initiatives talk to me about where you see the future of e-bikes uh some of the challenges regarding them in terms of trail access and that sort of thing yeah and just how what you think the future of e-bikes are really sure e-bikes so e-bikes now are not just in the mountain bike category but all all categories of bikes so commuter bikes utility bikes road bikes and mountain bikes. And if you look at the growth statistics of the industry as a whole, it's one of the few segments in the bike industry that's growing. And that came after one of the first downturns, you know, several years ago in the bike industry as a whole. Yeah. So from an economic standpoint, there's a lot of industry motivation to capitalize on this new segment. And so there's a lot of drive from that end of things. Now the challenges are um, infrastructure and access. And the arguments against e-bike access are that it's going to um, compromise mountain bikes long-term campaign to be regarded as a legitimate low impact user group accepted <laughs> on single track that were previously exclusively used by horses and foot traffic and they might not feel good about adding a new user group so as mountain bikers we've been in that situation for 20 years and i think you know the idea that this new user group with pedal assist 
is going to compromise that argument is a very fair thing to address. The other side of that is that what we see with e-bike users and consumers is that it's getting so many new people on bikes and outside and into cycling that we are seeing advocates for cycling infrastructure, whether that's hard surface or soft surface, that would otherwise never have been part of the bike community. And those two things kind of offset each other. Um, there's a debate, you know, where it is, you know, is it benefiting one direction or the other? But that's kind of how I see that advocacy landscape. Going to forest service meetings to try to help them create fact-based e-bike policy and city meetings to try to help them create fact-based policy. You know, there are some polarized oppositions. You know, there's some people that are e-bike, you know, they're in love with their new e-bike and they're like, they should be every place bikes are. And then there's some people, you know, that most cases are um, either foot travelers that would prefer no bikes at all on mm -hmm. their infrastructure, mm -hmm. or it, that other opposition comes from within the bike industry. And what I've seen, it's individuals who have an identity that they have spent years and years cultivating fitness wise, education wise, advocacy wise. And they see this new user group threatening what they've invested in from a couple different standpoints. One is access. And one is having an experience that they've spent decades cultivating. And it's a little distasteful to imagine somebody to be able to have that experience without doing in the investment that I have to get there. Yeah. So I could relate to that when e-bikes came out, but I came to the point that that attitude is really a little self-absorbed and elitist yep. because why should I not want to share a, a grounding experience that probably makes me a better person, yeah. a better citizen in the community because I'm happier? And why wouldn't I want to share that with more people in the community to, yeah. to kind of elevate everybody? Yeah. So there's still some contention. There's still a lot of um, public land policy issues to go from what was a motorized, non-motorized designation to somehow accommodate e-bikes one way or the other. And no policy is the worst thing. And so that's been a huge part of my motivation to be involved with the Forest Service and with the city is that there's people on both sides that are, you know, kind of tweaking the reality of the facts, you know, whether that's the existing science on trail impact or safety issues or whatever it is. But it's pretty clear that those original motorized, non-motorized designations were created because of impact. And if you look at the impact and the existing science, pedal assist bikes are much more closely aligned in their impact of a traditional mountain bike than they are with a motorcycle. Yeah. So if impact is the litmus for us creating that policy, something in the middle makes a lot of sense. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, listening to a different podcast at one point. I think I, I want to say it was maybe the Velo News podcast. They were talking about how many watts, quote unquote, it, it'll actually add to your riding. And they were sort of, sort of making the point that, you know, it'll sort of make your average person be able to ride like Julian Absalon uphill. Um, 
and in the scheme of things, that's not really tearing up trails anymore. No, and, and it's it's if anything, it's broadening their radius of exploration and the you know how they get to explore their their corner of the world. Yeah, and I like you said earlier, I went through a little phase of that ego coming to terms because I've been training hard for. 10 years now and worked really hard for the fitness level that I have. Right. And I was doing uh, some intervals um, to, between a, a photo thing and mammoth earlier this year. And I was doing some VO two intervals and I don't know, during the interval I was doing 450 Watts or whatever. And mid interval, here comes this lady, no helmet, yoga pants, <laughs> flat pedals, mid sixties, probably just blows my doors off and i had this moment where i was so frustrated because i'm not used to getting past in the middle of an interval right and she just had this shit eating grin on her face and i was so pissed for about 15 or 20 seconds and then i remembered just how broadly she was smiling and she was out there she probably covered 20 miles that day right and uh in an incredible place and i mean yeah, I felt a little bit bad for myself for a second. But like you're saying, it was all ego there. And I mean, who cares? She was having the time of her life. Right, right. Um, and ultimately, that person being involved and enjoying mountain biking is to your benefit, I think. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. You know, because it's going to be someone else's campaigning for more bike infrastructure. And, yeah. and it's in all likelihood, from what I've seen, somebody probably wouldn't have ridden otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, you, yeah, you you made that turn around faster than I did <laughs> mentally. Well, my problem is uh, when my KOMs get taken by e-bikes. <laughs> and I want to know what Strava is going to do about that. Because I think there's a road bike e-bike rental service in Moab now. And so I've got a couple of KOMs in Arches National Park, especially the, uh, the opening switchbacks there in the National Park. And probably weekly, I get a notification from... You know, such and such took your KOM by like 45 seconds on only maybe a, a 10 minute segment. And I'll go in and look at their ride and they average like 128 beats per minute or something. And I'm like, God damn it, here's another e-bike. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I want to know what Strava's going to do about my KOMs. But other than that, I'm good with it. <laughs> well, maybe the opportunity is just for you to let go of yeah, your attachment true. to KOMs. I know, it's true, it's true. <laughs> There's something to be said there too. <laughs> Um, what's your take on bikes in wilderness? It's probably the, the other hot topic. Yeah. So, um, IMBA has a philosophy on it. There's sustainable trails coalition who's campaigning for that. There's a long history of the interpretation of the wilderness bill and a debate whether there was intention to limit access to recreational mountain biking, or if that language in the wilderness bill intention was to prevent the extractive industries mm -hmm. from going in there. And I think that, you know, bikes in wilderness or wilderness B pivots on that interpretation of what was the original intention of the wilderness bill. Mm -hmm. And if we go back to impact science, I think there's a pretty strong argument that there are wilderness experiences that are not incompatible with bicycles and the current bill um is suggesting is proposing that uh forest service managers regionally have the option 
to designate wilderness trails as either bike accessible or not. I don't think that probably is realistic in the standpoint of passing, but I do think it brings up uh, an important discussion in that if the interpretation of the wilderness bill was to prevent the extractive industries, then the interpretation is prejudicial against a particular user group. Huh. So if there's not more impact than the existing users, foot travel and horse travel, um, then, and it's an impact argument, then why should bicycles be prevented from those areas? And I think that's a fair argument. That's a, that's a fair debate to bring up. And it's one of the reasons why I think um, I acknowledge Sustainable Trails Coalition mission as a, a spotlight on this issue that is, I think is prejudicial against cyclists. Does it mean I think mountain bikes should be on every wilderness segment? It doesn't. Um, but I think that's a fair debate to have. So you think maybe a case by case? The proposal, the the bill is a case by case basis. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So and does it does it compromise the um, political landscape that the mountain bike community has forged with the wilderness society for compromises when there's a wilderness bill? It provides some. There's definitely some static there, mm. and and I acknowledge that. But I really have a hard time with something that seems prejudicial to something that I've invested my whole life in. Right, right, of so, course. What's and maybe this? I'm oversensitive as a U.S. white male, and the prejudice <laughs> that I experience is not being able to ride someplace, but that's how it feels. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. What's the status in Europe? In that uh, so there's so much less public land in Europe and there's so much the the bicycle industry there from an infrastructure standpoint is ahead of ours to start with so the size of the e-bike market there and the access there is much broader and much more developed or sophisticated than it is in the u.s and the growth projections for that economy is kind of mind-boggling so the advocacy discussion in the U.S. of where to decide to allow them and where not to is pretty important in accommodating a growing user group that's going to be here. And if there's no policy, they're going to be riding where they're not allowed anyway, and that's going to be disastrous for both sides. And it's to a degree, that's what's going on now because they're fairly stealthy. Um, there's a lot of... There are people riding e-bikes where they're technically not allowed now. And I don't think there's a lot of land managers that aren't aware of that. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. Po- creating policy, specific policy so people know, so then there can be actionable things after that is important. Yeah. So speaking of uh, wilderness, exploration, all that sort of thing, you have a tradition with your dad of uh, hunting every fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you said you got an elk a few days ago. I did. Yeah. So I grew up in a family where hunting wasn't really a thing. Um, I have friends that are diehard vegans. Mm-hmm. And we have conversations about that. And I have friends who own AK-47s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I haven't 
been hunting, but I have uh, this growing curiosity about earning my own animal protein. How did that tradition start for you? And is that a conscious effort on your part um, to, yeah, I guess, why is that such a tradition for you? Well, it's a tradition in my family. And as far as my dad is an avid hunter and angler, and it's been an important part of his life and was kind of a key component in him finding Durango Hmm. and moving here with my mom before I was born. So he came here on a hunting trip. Uh, well, he came here several times. They're both from Kansas and (laughs) came here several times with outdoorsman aspirations. And, you know, he kind of became a, he's kind of a legend of an elk hunter. Really? And in what regard? Uh, well, he's been very successful over a long period of time, I guess. Okay. So he, he's oh, gotcha. So in this community. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, we, I grew up small game hunting with him, but then once I found sports and got consumed with that, there wasn't much time. And it was really after my retirement that it was this opportunity to reconnect with my dad that motivated me to start hunting with him again and big game hunting with him. And something you said earlier is that you have, you have friends that are vegan and make that philosophical choice. And Mm. you have friends that are, you know, on the other end of the spectrum. And, um, I'm not a vegetarian and, that's one besides, I mean, the biggest reason is to connect with my dad and connect with the outdoors. That's a, was a great opportunity for me, but from the philosophical standpoint, I think something that you're getting at is that being close to your protein source and seeing it for what it is, is the truth. So you're closing the loop on that food source very quickly. If you're a hunter, yeah. if you're the person taking the life that you're going to consume, that's, that is as real as it gets. And so much of our culture, you know, thinks that you just go to the grocery store and that's the beginning of your protein and your meat. So for me, there's a philosophical standpoint of it. And, um, you know, when I kill an animal that I'm going to eat, I, you know, give thanks and say a prayer hmm. and try to appreciate everything that has to happen for me to eat meat. Yeah. Yeah. I also, you mentioned, uh, earlier before we started recording that you were out there for five days to get your most recent elk. Right. And I like that component too, that you're really earning it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. once in a while you get lucky, but more and more, there's a really interesting article in the local paper today about elk populations. And more and more, the elk population in this part of Colorado is declining. Hmm. So hunting success is going down. And there's a really healthy current debate on um, Division of Wildlife policy and issuing licenses and what that has to do with the population's current state, predation from mountain lions and bears and what that has to the, how that's contributing to the, the state of the population of the elk herds here. And development, the loss of habitat. So, um, it's a really complex issue as everything is, you know, 
nothing is insulated from anything else. So all of those things are affecting it. And, you know, there's a little bit of, I think there's some conflicted interest from the standpoint of um, parks and wildlife in that their primary funding source is from selling licenses and their primary mission is wildlife management. So those two things are on different sides of the scale. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in that five days, were you out there the whole time? What does that look like? I wasn't camping. Okay. Um, where well, we, and where were you hunting? I was hunting in unit 75, okay. which is missionary area. Gotcha. Yeah. And I would get up at three and be where I wanted, where I thought I needed to be when the, when first light happened. And was your dad with you this year? Well, he was with me and most of those times, but he's, he'll be 80. So he doesn't get around the mountains like he used to. So we're kind of changing the strategy of hunting where I get to do a lot more legwork Mm -hmm. and which is fine. That's part of what I like about it. Mm -hmm. But you know, a big part of being out there and, you know, one of the things that connected me to mountain biking and to skiing and to running was it was an outdoor experience and that connection to the earth and hunting is, is kind of a unique facet of that. When you're trying to be stealthy in the woods, that's a lot different than running or riding down a trail. And I think you, you hear more things and you see more things and you have a unique connection, Hmm. um, that way. So it's definitely a grounding experience for me and you're just you're trying to figure out the the patterns and the behaviors of the animals that you're looking for yeah so uh, developing that a little bit more i'm pretty ignorant to the entire process uh what does it look like i mean what's your strategy what do you do out there well i'm hunting in an area that my dad has hunted in for 50 years Wow. So he has an intimate knowledge of the terrain. That's really cool. And, you know, five decades of history of what the animals do in this terrain. And the interesting thing is that every year it evolves. Yep. The behavior of the animals evolve. And so some of that's hunting pressure. Some of that's climate issues. Some of that's, you know, other environmental factors, other predators <laughs> or fires that, that consume habitat. And so every year you're learning more and kind of reevaluating, all right, the animals are doing this, this year, you're gonna have to go here. And in general, the, a general rule is if there's some place that is really, really hard to get to. And so no one's going to go in there and provide hunting pressure. The elk are going to figure that out pretty quick. Mm, Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. So you drive up Missionary Ridge Road, um, get out and just start hiking. Well, you, there's usually a plan, you yeah. know, where you have seen animals in the past or where you think they're moving first thing in the morning and you just try to get in a, in a position, you know, you're thinking about wind and where your scent's carrying and where you can walk and not be noisy. So this time of year on the north side where there's snow some days it's soft enough that it's really quiet. Some days it's crunchy and it's extra loud. But mm. being stealthy is a huge part of that. And understanding what their sense tools are 
hearing and scent yeah. and what they use to prevent themselves from from predation. Yeah, yeah. So uh, once you've made the kill, that, that your job is far from over, what's it like getting an 800-pound animal uh, out? Is well, that from, how much they weigh? Yeah, from... Yeah, it depends. Because uh, you said you got a bull this year, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in the one of the Parks and Wildlife Management strategies is they have started reducing tags they're issuing. And um, it's less likely that you're going to draw a bull tag to a cow tag for that management strategy. And I've... A bull is preferable because more meat. Well, or... uh, from a meat standpoint, a cow's preferable because okay. it's higher quality meat. Uh huh. So, if somebody is is meat hunting, um, a cow tag is preferable. Mm. But you know, not everybody's meat hunting. Some people are trophy hunting. And but if you get a bull tag, you want to get a smaller bull. Mm. But yeah, they're big, and the the physical work really starts after the animal's down and you field dress it and, you know, have to figure out how to pack the meat up mm-hmm. to someplace that's. Mm-hmm. Wow. So do you take a vehicle in or are you just hiking it out? Well, where, where I got a vehicle and to where you make the, yeah. If, if you can take a vehicle there, it's probably low chance. There's going to be animals. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this, this place is pretty far from a road and um, it was a long hike to get there and finish um, the field dressing um, on the second day. So I packed out some of the meat the first day, went back with friends the second day and packed some of it back to the truck and then packed some of it to um, someone who had horses in the area Mm. and they brought it out a couple days later. How often or have you ever gone back and the meat's gone? Or um, I've, I've gone back and had stuff picked on, but I've never had like where a bear found it. And, hmm. but that happens. It's kind of surprising. Honestly, I'd think that, you know, coyotes or, you know, mountain lions would be all over it overnight. Think, yeah. I'm kind of surprised too. And that doesn't happen, but if you can and you have daylight and you can get it out that day, you do. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. 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 It sounds like a heck of an adventure. I mean, some of your riding these days reflects that same sort of spirit. I mean, you still race, um, but the you know now and then you'll upload a ride to Strava that's really impressive in its scope, <laughs> or you know we'll just be chatting about a ride that you did. Um, has that always been a thing you've enjoyed, or is that a more recent you know post race career style of riding you like where you just cover a ton of distance? A, a little bit of both. I mean, if you're if your priority is racing, then you have a prescription for every ride. And so there's less freedom for improvisation and exploration. So that's been something I've been able to enjoy since my full time racing has been finished. And I also have, um, just a personal goal every year to try to ride single track around Durango that I've never been on before that I can get to from the house. So that's where a lot of those exploration rides. And so far, I've been able to do it every summer. So sometimes it's something that's new built, that's convenient. And sometimes it's something that you got to go a long ways to get to. But I think that says something about 
like the riding resource we have around here, yeah. that there's still trails that haven't been on. Yeah. Well, one thing I've always appreciated about you too is that, um, you know, you can point to a peak around town or in our area and almost always tell me something about it. Um, you, either you've been on it or you've been near it or you've heard a story from it. And that's definitely something now that I'm kind of putting roots down here in Durango, that's certainly something I aspire to be able to do one day is just have this incredibly comprehensive knowledge of the outdoors of this area. Um, and that only, you, there's no shortcut to that. I mean, you just have to do it through experience. Um, so part of me is excited in some ways about not being bound to that race and training schedule anymore and just being able to go explore. But well, you'll have, you'll have plenty of time. You're going to have a lot of life after your racing career is over. And that's, I look back when I was in your position and it's, it's hard to have that perspective, you know, cause like we talked about, it's a little consuming, but I think it's just a side effect of a high quality active outdoor lifestyle. You know, that, that just is what happens when, if you're going to live in Durango and you're not going to take advantage of being outside in, in the beauty and the public land resource that we have here, then the challenge, (laughs) yeah, well, yeah, because cost of living is not, is not the highest anywhere, but it's not, it's, there's a lot of places where it's more reasonable. And so economically, it's a little bit of a struggle here. But what you get for that extra burden is an amazing outdoor lifestyle resource. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have any, putting you on the spot a little bit, do you have any memories of really wild adventures that, you know, maybe you had a plan and it kind of went out the window or (laughs) just something crazy happened, whether bike related, hunting related, hiking related? where things got a little hairy. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I end up on rides where I'm bushwhacking and carrying my bike for long periods of time, pretty regularly looking yeah. for new trails. Yeah. So, and sometimes in the middle of those, you're like, oh, I wonder if I may, just made a big mistake, you know, cause you start wondering, all right, I'm by myself. Oftentimes there's only so many hours of daylight left. I'm not sure my wife, Mary knows exactly where I am, (laughs) you know, things like that. So, but you finish those and you survive and it's, you know, it's a lot of vitality that comes out of those adventures as well. So I don't think there's that many people that like stumbling through timber with their bike on their back, but you know, afterwards you look back on it and you're like, all right, I was trying to connect this trail to this trail and here's where I am. And now with technology, you go back and you can look at the satellite overlay and you're like, all right, here's exactly where I went. There's where I shouldn't have gone. Here's where I should have gone. And so those things are really interesting. Yeah. Have you ever spent, had to spend a night out? I haven't. No, no. I, and, and I'll, I do what I'm going to do a mission like that. I spend a fair bit of time studying the maps. I don't rely on a GPS and I always take a map with me, but I try to have the basic fundamentals of the relief of where I'm going already in my head when I go on one of those missions. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, there's a lot of people that have gone on those missions and end up spending the night I mean, in the Hermosa, you know, there's, there's a handful of trails in there that not too many people use and there's lots of 
sucker spurs on there. Yeah, sucker spurs. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any memories of thinking, you know, I'm really up in it right now. I'm up a creek. <laughs> um, I don't know about being in trouble. I think, I mean, I've finished rides in the dark before, um, you know, either because I didn't allow enough time or I hadn't been there before and took longer or I got rained on and the bike got clogged up with mud. Mm. But I never feared for my well-being. You know, if you know what the realities of surviving in the backcountry are, early in the day when it looks like you're stringing yourself out, you're already thinking about, all right, this could turn bad, and you start to come up with solutions so you don't get in that position. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah, we were talking about Sep earlier. My friend Sep Coos, and local rider here who now, now rides professionally on the road um, in the Pro Tour with uh, Lotto. Since early on, and I think this must be in large part due to his family and his dad, Dolph, who had an incredible, still does an incredible just spirit for adventure. That's, even when he was 15, 16, 17 years old, that's the sort of riding that Sep gravitated towards. I totally. mean, we always used to laugh. He would do these, as a 16-year-old, he'd do these seven or eight-hour rides, just completely blow himself out, and then take two days totally off. Just absolutely terrible training. Um, and he's very talented, so he got away with it. At this point, he, he trains like a true professional, and it shows, but... I remember one story where uh, I think he said he was 17 and it was one of those days where he was just exploring and I think it was on Missionary Ridge and he hadn't planned on a big day. So he took one bottle and no food, (laughs) but it was one of those days where he happened upon a new area and there was a little trail and he just kept wanting to see what was around the next corner, what's around the next corner, what's around the next corner. And even at 17, he had a, a, a good enough grip on the topography in the area um, that he felt like he could link something together and basically drop down into lemon the lemon reservoir area a full you know big set of mountains over basically big ridge over and you know it became four hour ride five hour rides still nothing to eat and uh totally out of fluids and i think at about hour five and a half or hour six he was so completely exhausted that he had to lay down. He had to just <laughs> take a break. And uh, he laid down and knew that he was going to fall asleep. Said he wasn't sure if he was going to wake up. But he just <laughs> took a nap, woke up a couple hours later, was still with it, and got his, got himself out. But um, I thought that said a lot about uh, just kind of the culture here in the mountains. I mean, not everyone is is that way but there's definitely a tradition in durango of of that sort of exploration and it's it's pretty cool that at 17 you know he's already having those experiences even though i don't know if his mom knows that story but she she does now (laughs) yeah well and and you know his family's outdoor legacy is deep yeah and so i think that's part of his family culture too Yeah, yeah and it's great that he didn't end up lost overnight that that story turned out good and it's a fun story to tell but it's it's important to realize that you know you twist your ankle in that situation or fall in that situation then it can go bad in a hurry yeah and when you're used to it working out you know your comfort level grows and grows and grows maybe to a point that is a little bit beyond your ability level and then 
you know, it's like a good crash on the bike now and then. A right. good crash now and then is good, right. I think. Keeps you well, in check. Like we said, those those experiences make us feel vital. Mm. They're deep connecting experiences. And so you have, I think for a quality life, you have to balance that with some risk. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well put. All right. So to put a bow on all this, um, going back to the racing world quickly, just a couple of events that, that I'm curious about and wanted to expand on a little bit. We didn't really talk about, we talked about when you didn't make the Olympics and why, Uh but in 2000, you did go to the Olympics. What was that experience like four years after the the injury that sort of pulled the rug out from under you uh and where were those olympics again that was the sydney Sydney. olympic games okay so there was a similar two season um series of races in 99 and 2000 and i won the national series in 99 and the national championship in the norba series and so i was favored in that process and um then there were three World Cup le- races left in 2000. The opening World Cup was in Mazatlan, Mexico. And that was really early, like m- March or April. April, I think. And I went down there in a similar position, points-wise, with the other people contending for the, for the two Olympic slots. And I broke my leg oh. at that race. God, lower so, leg? Yeah, my tibia. Ugh. So I, How I many thought, injuries I, have you had throughout your career? Well, three collarbones and one Three leg. collarbones? Well, yeah, two, two bad collarbones, one, one fracture that was not displaced. But two collarbones that were, took me out for a while and one, legs, one leg that took me out for a while. Ugh. So I, I was kind of back in that same place of, Really, this is weird that it's playing out similar to 96. How many months before? This was um, two months. There was a big break in the World Cup schedule. So it was the Mazatlan World Cup and then the two Canadian World Cups. And there was eight weeks in between. Hmm. And uh, so I was I was back in that place of despair and then had to turn it around like, all right, probably not going to. Olympics is not going to be part of my career, but if I don't cross every T and dot every I with my rehab and everything and still try, I'll regret it. So yeah, it's I had, like I had a new we, focus. It's sort of like what we were talking about earlier in a uh, much more f- focused view during a race. You get to that point where you think that your race might be over, but it's definitely over if you throw in the towel. If you right. don't throw in the towel, you dot every I, cross every T and you just keep it close, a lot of times it'll work in your favor and you won't have that feeling at the finish line of having given up, which any competitor out there knows is the worst feeling you can have. Sure, exactly. And and, uh, I like that analogy that that big picture of a season or a big picture of a goal plays itself out on a micro scale in every race. Yeah. So I put my leg in a brace and flew from Mazatlan back to Boulder and found, you know, did some research. Mary helped me find the best surgeon for this particular type of surgery. Happened to be in Boulder at the Boulder Center for Sports Medicine. Had the surgery. Um, was pretty aggressive with my rehab. Spent a lot of time in the gym there. 
made some really, really short cranks for my indoor trainer. So as soon as I had a tiny range of motion, I could turn circles. How did you make those side. cranks? I just found, uh, like kids, BMX cranks. Huh. Uh, and just making it work, doing yeah. what you can. Yeah. And as soon as I was able to turn circles, like the, the pace of my recovery really sped up as soon as I was able to get that circulation. Um, you know, ended up riding outside then a couple weeks after the surgery against the, the doctors and I was still on crutches, non-weight bearing. So I had to get on crutches in the driveway, get on the bike. Mary pushed me out of the driveway. I said, I'll be back in an hour. I'm going to need help. And so that was my... To re- catch you. Yeah. To get to get off the bike. Talk about no crashing rule. Right, right. Oh my... So... Sounds that, familiar. <laughs> that, so that process went on and I was able to go to those next two world cups and be the highest placing American and make the team. How many weeks the after the break was that, that you were back eight on the weeks. world cup stage? Eight weeks. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's wild. Um, so then that, you know, that whole scenario, which I, you know, and you had good form part, eight weeks later. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good enough. So I was top 20 in both of those. I don't mm-hmm. remember exactly where. Yeah. Uh, but Tinker had already made the team again, automatic. Whew. So I think both races, I ended up catching and passing him on the last lap. Wow. So. And so then you went to Sydney. Went to Sydney and, you know, had an Olympic experience, which is, it really puts professional bike racing in perspective. Hmm. Like we think we have a big international sport. And then the Olympic Games, where not only are there probably a hundred comp- countries that don't compete in cycling, but all these other disciplines, it kind of it's a a bigger experience than than cycling that you kind of thought was a big experience to start with, and so that was a a really a, a blessing of an, of an experience and kind of the culmination of of my racing career. Yeah, um, in, How did it in a change? lot of ways. Did, would you say that it changed you or changed your life or changed, it probably changed your opportunities. Yeah. Having that <laughs> associated with your persona gives you some opportunities. No. You know, it's, it's valued socially. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Huh. Um, but it's there. Yeah. So, and it's gratifying in an egoic way. <laughs> but like I say, it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing that I always remember about that experience is that it had been so long, like as a runner and a skier and a cyclist and through two Olympic campaigns that when it was over and I kind of achieved what my goal was, I had to grapple through some depression issues, like, because that's, you focus on something that's going to be a moment in time where you become an Olympian or you become a national champion or you you, you win such and such race and it's very gratifying for a very short period of time, but it shines light on the importance of being present and that the process of getting there and the process afterwards and getting to the next place, that's where your peace of mind comes from. And that's where your connection comes from. And so that was probably the most valuable thing that I took away from my Olympic experience. Yeah, I mean, I that point that you just made has come up in almost every 
conversation that I've had on this podcast so far is that that post success slump and it's so counterintuitive right um, I I experienced that with my first national title my teammate Levi when he had his breakout rides at the Breck Epic this year and won two stages um, I've been coaching him this year and um, we exchanged some text messages and he said you know I don't know why but I'm just I'm not happy and I don't know what to do with myself and I'm feeling some depression after this success and he was so relieved when I told him that that was not a unique experience to him it's a normal phenomenon yeah when you've put so much into a single point in time right and that's what just absolutely astounds me more than anything about the best in the world whether it be Nino or uh, you know whoever they win the biggest race in the world and they come back and they're still there and they're still prepared and they're still motivated year after year after year. Um, and regardless of their, their physical achievement therein, the psychological strength to me sure. is incredible. I mean, that's so impressive. Cause I, and you know, your psychological state, you know, and how you fortify these things that compose your drive and you know, like your drive is the most important thing in success at, well, in high achievement, probably in any category, but we understand it, you know, as endurance athletes, you know, you have to have some luck and you have to have some physical gifts. Um, you have to be predisposed to this particular discipline, but you've seen it with lots of people like modestly talented people that you thought are never going to make it. And they had so much drive, like eventually you're like, holy crap, wow, they came a long ways. Yep, yep, yep. Drive is the most important thing. Yeah. And I think um, being able to invest in the process keeps that drive alive yeah. for the long yeah. term that you need. Yeah, absolutely. So switching gears, literally um, opposite end of the spectrum in terms of racing. You've won a couple single speed world championships titles one two 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 okay. yeah i went to a lot of those races yeah they were fun yeah um you i know you won an 02 in i went in 99 and 02 okay and then i was second in a handful of them too yeah um but i like those events as you know single speeding kind of was to mountain biking what mountain biking was to the rest of the bike industry <laughs> that's you a know, great way to put as it as time yeah. goes on so um, you know, there are events where there was a lot of intention to help people not take themselves too seriously. And that, that was a refreshing and fun experience. Yeah. So. Yeah. The first ever one of these conversations I recorded was at the Bend single speed mountain bike worlds a few weeks ago. And I sat down with Adam Craig and Carl Decker, both of whom have won their own single speed titles. Right. But Carl especially was telling me... <laughs> At the O2, I think it was the O2 Mountain Bike Nationals, he said, uh, so traditionally you get a tattoo for winning single speed worlds, but in O2, for whatever reason, it was a branding. Right. And I don't know if he was embellishing, but he said he could smell your burning flesh from a block away. <laughs> well, from my recollection, that's not much of an exaggeration because the discomfort of the branding was not as bad as the smell of your own flesh on fire and not running away 
and and so there's something so dysfunctional about so dysfunctional about sitting there and smelling your skin on fire and still sitting there. <laughs> and it it stinks. What in the world? Did you know going in that that was your plight? Yeah, yeah, they, it was not a surprise. Oh my goodness. What how much did it hurt? It didn't hurt that much. Wow. But it stunk. Wow. Thanks, Travis. Thank you. Thanks for talking about burning flesh to finish things off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a finish. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. As always, The Adventure Stash is edited and produced by Lily McKelvin. Please go subscribe to us on iTunes. Um, Also, give the podcast five stars. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Those things go far. Um, if you have feedback for us, email us at theadventurestash at paceandmckelvin.com. We reply to every single email at this point. So uh, send us one if you want to have a chat, if you have some ideas for us. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs>